0: Daniel is, is an interesting book because it's one of those books that is found in the prophetic section of the Old Testament. There's, there's history, there's poetry books, and then there's this prophetic section. And Daniel is in there, and it's one of those books that could have fallen into the history category because it's half and half. It's half prophecy and half history. It begins out I'm talking about Daniel and, and the, essentially the, the, uh, the Jews, how they, they were captive. They were led captive into Babylon, and uh, and so... Uh, that's, that's part of Daniel's story there. And, uh, and, and prophecy, in case you're not really clear on what that is, prophecy is, is a prediction or a declaration of future events and things that will happen in the future. And of course, the Bible, over a third of our Bible speaks of things that have not yet happened. And so it's written there so that when it does happen, we get to turn and we get to glorify God and say, okay, God said this was coming, and sometimes it talks about things that we don't need to be a part of, right? And so when we see those things happen, we go, okay, that's that's something I don't need to participate in, right? And that's why that prophecy exists, to let us know, that, so that we are alerted to its existence. So the first six chapters of Daniel are historical books with great insight and principles that we are studying, and, uh, and of course the last six are prophetic, and... Um, those prophecies that Daniel speaks of, of course, line up with the prophecies of John the Revelator, or part of the Book of Revelations. If you've read that, it's a it's a scary book. It's a difficult book to read because there's a lot of symbolism and difficult things in there to understand. I'm not even going to tell you that I'm I'm an esca esca eschat, eschatologist. No, eschatologist is that the right word? See, I can't even say it, so I can't even be it. You know what I mean? That's a study of the end times. That's somebody who is like who's like, man, I understand what's going on. I'm my eschatology. I, I got enough i got enough that I understand that I'm going out of here at the end before all of it goes bad. You know what I'm saying? Something called the rapture where Jesus takes the saints to heaven. That's me. I'm gone. So anyway, that's what I need to understand there. But we should have a healthy understanding of what's going to happen so that while it's happening, if, if uh, uh, we, we can be aware so that we can see, hey, the signs are there. It's getting ready to happen. So the principles we're learning from Daniel's life really apply to the real world that we are living in today. And the culture that he lived in is very similar to our culture today. He lived in a time where he was, a, uh, as a Hebrew boy from the age of 16, he was led uh, as a captive into Babylon. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar came in and took over Israel and led all the people there to Babylon. And he was being groomed for a position in the government. And Daniel and his friends were selected and actually worked for the king, right? They were, they were part of his advisors. And last week we studied out the, the cultural shift and the challenges they faced as a result of that shift. And now Daniel, he lived in Babylon about 90 years. From age 16 to about 90, he was in Babylon. And he was there underneath four different government changes. He was there through Nebuchadnezzar and then what ended with Darius. And, uh, and, and it was, each one of those, those, those kingdoms and each one of those cultures was a little different for Daniel. And, uh, and, and I believe that the, the greatest test that you and I will face today when it comes to culture is, is summed up in this story, the stories that we're going to look at today, okay? We're going to look at two different stories that are separated by 23 years of history. And um, and I want you to see them, that, that the thing that pushes us against the strongest in the area that our faith will be tested in the most. I'm going to show you that this is not a new thing. It's, it's, it's something that Daniel faced, but it's something that's been going on since the beginning. Culture's greatest test for us has been going on. Since the beginning. It is not a new thing. It is the thing that began all the struggles. It's how good and evil began, and it's also how good and evil will end. So we'll talk through a little bit of that today. Uh, so we're going to be in Daniel. If you need a Bible today, we would love to give you a Bible. Our service hosts have them. If you just put your hand up in the air, hold it up in the air. We will bless you with the Bible. You can take that home and read it. And uh, but we will also have the verses up here on the screen. So Daniel 3, 1 through 6 is where I'm going to start today. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up, which, of course, incidentally, the image was of himself, right? It's a, it's a gold image of Nebuchadnezzar. So talk about an ego, right? This guy has got one. And so the, the, so the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial assembles assembled for the dedication of that image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do. Now this last line is important, and it's kind of what we're going to look at today. And it's also what we're seeing in our culture today. It's one thing to live in a culture full of idolatry, where everybody is worshiping different things, and they're chasing after their own hearts and their own desires and all sorts of things, giving the place of God in their lives to anything and everything, each other, sports, whatever. But it's a whole other thing for culture to look at us and say, hey, this is what you're going to do. You're now going to worship this And they commanded or demand us to worship what they worship. And I believe in our lifetime and even believe that it's happening today that someone will say that that you are commanded to worship something you don't believe in. I think that's going to happen. I think it's going to happen in my time. So the verse continues on. It says, this is what you are commanded to do. O peoples, nation, and men of every language, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that... Of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So I want you to notice something here that that the world or the culture is pushing them to worship something that is not their God. And they are doing it and motivating it out of fear. Because that is how culture will always motivate you to worship something that is not God, is out of fear. Proper motivation for worship to God is love. Because when you think about what God has done for you, when you think about the sacrifices that he made, Jesus leaving heaven, coming to this earth, being born in this earth, a redneck Christmas, right? Being born and living a life here on this earth and all that he sacrificed and gave for us, the proper response to that is worship out of love. Worship is, hey, I'm I'm giving you my life. You are my best. You are worth all. Everything else is rubbish compared to you. (coughs) And I think that is the natural response that we make him first in all that we do, our finances, our homes, our jobs, that we give him the highest praise because of what he's done. That, that's worship that is motivated by love. But the devil, our enemy, who is driving the culture of the world, wants worship. But he can't get it, right? Because he, he, the only way he can get it, he can't get it out of love because there's nothing loving within him. There's nothing to love about him. And so he will try to gain our worship through the only means that he has, and that is fear. It's fear. There will be people who aren't Satan worshipers who will compromise their values and their morals and bow to things they don't believe in because of fear of what will happen if they don't. And I believe that that test is coming in our time. The Bible prophesies that it's coming and I believe some of it's already here. Now the next story that I want to look at this morning in Daniel is in chapter 6 and let me give you a little update on here's what's happening. King Darius from the Medes and the Persians has taken over Babylon and Daniel, at this point in time uh, is is a much higher caliber leader in the in the government and, and he 's hanging around and, and Daniel uh, has a close relationship with the king okay now with Nebuchadnezzar, the first king that daniel that Daniel uh, served under Nebuchadnezzar liked Daniel because Daniel interpreted dreams and had wisdom and helped guide him and, and so he was, a, he was he was his puppet but King Darius King Darius was different of course he would utilize Daniel for his wisdom and for his ability to interpret dreams but He and Daniel were friends, which was a different situation entirely. And of course, as you can assume from reading any history book about any kingdom that has ever existed in the world, there are people that serve underneath the king who have ulterior motives, right? They want power for themselves. And so all these people that serve underneath the king, Daniel being one of them, they would have looked at him as a threat. They're all pawns in the game, right? And they want to shift him out. And so they wanted to take Daniel out because of his level of influence. They wanted that influence for themselves, okay? And so <clears throat> Daniel becomes a target of a few of those power-hungry people. And they don't like his influence. They want him gone. So they pick up that story uh, in, in verse 5 of chapter 6. It says, finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So they recognize, here's Daniel. He's a man who's so full of integrity. This guy is solid in his character. They realize there's no way that he's going to slip up. They were watching. They were waiting for him. It feels like the world is doing that to us sometimes, doesn't it? They are watching and waiting for you to make a mistake. And with Daniel, they realized that he wasn't going to do it. They realized the only way to get to this guy was to attack his faith, to attack his religion and his God. And so they went after that and to discredit it. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you. Now, notice the difference here. Between the first test of our of our first story, they said, you will worship this. And now the second test here, the, the test of this story is, you can't worship that. So you must worship this, and you can't worship that. Those are the two greatest tests of our culture today. The verse continues on. It says, Who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. We know this is a popular story, Daniel in the lion's den, right? Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. See, back then when you put laws into place, you couldn't change them. They were written in stone or they became concrete. It was their final answer, Regis. That was it. There's no changing it. No takesy-backsies. And Darius didn't realize that this decree that he was putting into place was a direct attack on his friend Daniel. He didn't realize it. He's an egotistical guy, and he's like, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. I should be God. I should be the God, and nobody should pray to anybody but to me. I am Darius, king of Babylon. And so he, he says, let's do this. And so he puts, he signs the decree into law, and so we are beginning to see the greatest test of Daniel's time, and I believe in our own. Culture's greatest test is a battle over worship. It's over worship. It's how it all began. You will be forced to worship what you don't believe in and forced to stop worshiping what you do believe in. So let's go back to the beginning and look at the battle over worship because worship has been at the start of this world. And if we look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they describe our enemy, the devil, because that's where this all starts. That's where the battle, the fight, the resistance starts is with the devil because God is in heaven and his angels are there and Lucifer is one of God's angels. And he exists there, and he was the angel of worship. He was in charge of the worship. He was the one responsible for the music and the singing and the praising of God. And, and Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 14 says that, that one day he decided he wanted to get that worship for himself. So five different times he determined in his heart, saying, I will take the place of God. He wanted all the angels to worship him instead of God. And so there was a resistance. And God was not okay with that, so he cast him and a third of the angels that followed him out of heaven. Now, scholars believe that this happened, Like, because we're always curious about when did this happen? When did the devil actually get kicked out of it? And scholars will tell you that it happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. They call it gap theology. It says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. And that there was a gap or a time period there that existed before we get to the next verse. And we can see that that's possible and it's plausible. We read other verses where there's these gaps and, and it just the story continues on. There might have been years in between there. Paul's story, unless you read into other, other letters that he'd written, you'd never know there was fourteen years of time in between when he was saved and when he met the Apostle Peter. Like you wouldn't know that. But the but this gap here exists, and they say that between verse one and verse two, because at verse two it says that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. So scholars assume that the darkness came from Lucifer or Satan getting kicked out of heaven at that time. And that's when darkness came to the earth. We don't really know. It doesn't really make any difference according to our salvation. Like what you believe, whether you believe in the gap theory there or not, it's not going to mess with your salvation. So take it or leave it. But just know that this is what scholars say. So I thought I'd throw it in there to, to add to the story so that you can get a robust picture of what's happening here. But But Lucifer gets kicked out of heaven, and he's now dwelling on earth. And and then God puts a plan in place to replace his lead worshiper. But he doesn't appoint another angel. He doesn't create another angel. He creates man. He creates man on the sixth day. He also creates all of his creation. And all creation is there to give him pleasure. And we are created for his pleasure And we know this because Revelation says that. We were created, it was for his pleasure. Worship is the one thing according to the Bible that we will do for for the rest of eternity. (coughs) Psalms 156 says, Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. So it's always God's intent for us to be part of God's worship team, right? If you ever wanted to be on the worship team, welcome to it. You're officially on it, okay? Now, you don't have to be up here on a stage. You could be out there in your seat singing quietly to yourself if you don't sing well. No, I'm just kidding. We want to sing. We want to make a joyful noise, right? He didn't say it had to be a beautiful noise, and I'm certainly not a beautiful noise when I'm out there singing. I'm kind of glad I sit on the front row. There is nobody in front of me to hear me sing. Amen? So... We are, we are supposed to be a part of the worship team and the Bible says that if his human creations don't give him worship that the rocks will cry out and worship him. Think about that. We've got a rock that starts praising God if we don't do it. That's crazy to me. And God will figure out a way for his creation to praise him. So this could be also why we're so obsessed with music. We constantly have music going on, don't we? I mean, who doesn't honestly want like a theme song for every moment of every part of your day? You know what I'm saying? Like, we imagine what our theme songs are, like when you bust through a door, you want something awesome playing, right? You know? I think mine would be some kind of quirky song based on when I'm tripping and knocking things over. And, but uh, <clears throat> but we, all, we all love music. Music is, is a part of us, right? It's a comp- We want it to accompany everything that we do. And in truth, the number one reason people choose a church, honestly, is because of the music. Some of you, and you don't have to admit it or not, are here because you like the music that we're playing. You like the rock and roll, singing praise to Jesus. You enjoy that, and that's why you've chosen to come to this church. Whatever your reason, we're happy that you're here. (coughs) But music has a way of resonating with us, and God literally made us as musical instruments. We can sing. We We are natural percussion instruments with our hands. We can clap and give praise to God. And we can use those things to worship and exalt God. So now it begins to make sense why all of humanity has a target painted on us, right? Because we are taking the job that Lucifer had. We are providing worship to the one person that he doesn't want to receive worship. So we have targets painted on us. He hates us, not because he hates us or because of anything that we are doing, but because of what we give God. And he is out on a hunt to stop us from worshiping God at all costs, at all costs. And so this is what happened. This is what landed him in the hot water in the first place. So naturally he's going to attack us and try to claim our worship. He doesn't care if you worship him directly, whether you claim yourself to be a Satanist. He just doesn't want you to worship God. You worship anything else, just not God. And so this battle over worship in the beginning is exactly what caused Adam and Eve to sin in the Garden of Eden. It all stems from worship. It all stems from that. This battle is how it will end as, as well. If we look to the New Testament for a moment, we'll gain some clarity on that and see how worship plays out in the end. And then we'll, of course, go back to those stories that I started in Daniel, okay? But Revelation tells us that in the end there will be one world leader who will come to power and he will set up an image of himself in the temple of Jerusalem, right? And he will force everybody to bow down and worship that. So let's look at the two passages that will kind of help us sort that out. We'll look at Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. It says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Now, most of you, we want to stop right there for just a second. Most of you, you read the Bible and you just kind of run over things like that. You run right past it. Why would a verse like this exist in the Bible? Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Well, it's because we have a propensity to be deceived. We're easily deceived. Most of the time, it's it's subtle things that deceive us. Look, deception has been my job for years as a magician and sleight of hand stuff that I do. That's... I can deceive you very easily with a deck of cards and make you believe that magic is happening, right? People are easily deceived and you would say, well, Aaron, I'm not deceived. Well, can I humbly say that that's what a deceived person would say? (laughs) The nature of deception itself is that if you don't believe that you're deceived, or the moment that you know that you're deceived, you are therefore no longer deceived, right? So by its nature, you wouldn't know if you were deceived or not. That's why it requires us to, in, in, in humility, submit ourselves to the Scriptures and prayer and ask God to constantly reveal deceptions that are in our lives. We have to do that. We have to do that. It's why God gave us His Word. It's why He gave us pastors so that they can speak into our lives and remind us, Hey, don't be deceived. All right, sorry, let's just carry on here. All right. So the verse says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, okay? This is the end of times. This is the the guy who's going to set up the temple or set up the image of himself in the temple. The the man of lawlessness is revealed. And of course, Paul has to dig on him a little bit. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself. Now, does that not sound like the two stories that we're reading out of Daniel? He will oppose. So they're being opposed, you can't do that, and exalt, you must worship this. So the verse continues on, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be a God. Look, there's going to come a time when the Antichrist will come and set himself up to be God, and he will demand that everyone worship him. Well, you guys are wishing for the redneck Christmas story again, aren't you? You guys want that sermon back, don't you? This is a little rough today, Aaron. It's a little rough today. It's Daniel. It's truth. I want to give it to you. I know it's not as fun as a redneck Christmas, but I, but I, I want to give it to you. You need to hear it. Let's jump down to Revelations thirteen fourteen through seventeen. It says because of the signs he was given, power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. There's that deception again, right? We were deceived. He ordered them to set up an image of honor of in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Remember, the devil's motivation for worship will always be fear. Everybody who doesn't worship, who refuses to worship this image, will be killed. He has the power to kill you. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. The time prophecy talks about this mark of the beast. You and I are more familiar with this mark of the beast by his number, which is 666. You see it on every Ozzy Osbourne cover and every album or anything you see Ozzy and then you see the number 666. This is the mark of the beast. Not not Aussie necessarily, just, just the, the 666 number. And people will have to take that mark. And if they don't take that mark, they will, they will make you take it out of fear. And if you refuse to take it, he has power to, to kill you at this point. You won't be able to buy or to sell without this mark. There's that fear factor, right? You think about it. Because let me ask you an honest question. Those of you that are sitting there here in this room, how many of you would survive well if you had to hunt and grow your own food? There's a few of you out there. Okay, I'm coming to live with you guys. That's what I'm talking about. But let me ask you this. Let me go a little further. Could you hunt or could you grow your own food without having to buy anything? Because you can't buy, you can't sell unless you take this mark. See, there's that fear factor. All of a sudden, we begin to worry about our own skin. We begin to worry about our children. We begin to worry about our finances, our retirement plans. We begin to worry about all of these things, and we begin to actually reveal what we worship. So the devil will use fear to take you. Look, we've got to think about this. No McDonald's. Sorry, guys, no more McDonald's. No more Taco Bell. Maybe that's a good thing. No Walmart. Nothing. Nothing unless you take the mark. And so the currency of this world will be one currency, and it will all be controlled by the mark. You've got to imagine this. You go to Walmart, and you get all your groceries. You put them into a, into a, a cart, and you go there to to check out, and then you, like, you know, boop your forehead or something, or wherever the mark is going to be, whether it's on your wrist or on your head. Boop. Boop. Gosh, that would get old. I hope it's only once, for real. Whew. <laughs> but you have to worship his image and then take his mark. So you're going to have to give up or compromise your beliefs. You will have to worship that image and then take the mark. Or you, or you won't be able to buy or to sell. And so, you know, when I was growing up, we, we, <laughs> we didn't really know what the mark was going to be, okay? Like, we, we, we didn't know what it was going to be. It was interesting what, what movie makers, like, interpreted the mark was going to be. And uh, we still don't really know for sure what the mark is going to be, what it's going to look like. We kind of have an idea, and we think, we understand, you know, we think one world government, we think currency. We, we, we think we have a good idea, and I'll tell you what I think it is here in a minute. But but it was interesting what mov- movie makers interpreted the mark would be or how it would be administered. And you have to understand that, that as a kid... You know, at my church growing up, we talked about the rapture and we talked about end times a lot. It, it was like this this thing, man. I was, I was afraid, man. I heard. I was like, dude, I am not getting left behind. You know what I'm saying? This is not happening. Every New Year's Eve, we, were, we believed Jesus was coming every New Year's Eve, baby. And we were at the church. We were praying. We were in the nursery. We were kids and we were like, oh, dear Lord, it's about to strike midnight. Don't leave us behind. We were rapture practicing. You know what I'm saying? Jumping. That's how I grew up. That's how we grew up. There's a lot of you in here that knew. That. If you'd have no church experience, you are lucky that you didn't have to do that. We were worried. It was fearful. We were fearful. We were afraid. <laughs> and, um, and so oh, I'm thankful for my upbringing. I really am. I, I am. It gives me great stories to tell at church. And uh, so, so we, we didn't know what this mark was going to look like, but, but I was afraid. Like if I ever woke up from a nap and I was home alone, I was running all around the house. Where are you guys? Where are you? It wasn't like Home Alone where, you know, you were excited because you made your family disappear. It wasn't like that. You were scared that the rapture came and you got left behind. I hear here hearing D.C. talk singing in my head, The sun has come and you've been left behind. I'm singing that horribly. But you know what I'm saying? I was like, ah, oh, losing my mind. I would wake up and be alone. That's scary. That was scary for me as a little kid. And, of course, you know, it didn't help that the TV shows and the movies that they put on – they made them look horrific. And 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 according to the Bible, it will be. It, it will be a very difficult time to be a Christian. It, it'll be a very difficult time to be left behind from the rapture. But they depicted the mark. They said that the mark was like this rubber stamp, this one movie in particular. It was like a rubber stamp that said 666. And we, we look at that and we go, Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna see that coming. You know, like, okay, don't take the rubber stamp, you know what I mean? Like, I could see that coming. But don't think that our enemy will be that silly. Don't, don't, don't think that it's going to be that plain or that obvious. A deception will happen in a subtle way. Look, let me tell you something. We are getting ready to, and, and actually, I think it's already, I'm not sure if it's launched or not, but Apple Pay. Have you guys heard about Apple Pay where you can pay with your fingerprint? You can pay with your fingerprint and your phone. Don't even need anything else. Like, how simple will that be for a one-world government to come and take over, one one currency, and to control all that? Maybe maybe you have to have, like, a microchip or something installed in your arm. Now, I'm not saying that this is how it's going to happen, but it, it could feasibly happen this way, that you get a microchip. Like, they're doing it to our pets already. they got GPSs in them and everything. They know where they're at. It's got information on it. And it can have your information. And then you just, like I said, boop. Just boop yourself out or do it. It's on your head. Like... This is crazy how close we are to this actually being a reality in our time. And so we're going to feel the pressure to compromise our worship and do things that we don't want to do or that we can't do what we want to do. And the mark will be associated with stealing or subverting the worship and the whole basis of that is commerce. No, just just to throw this out here, I'm not saying that Apple or that Steve Jobs is going to come back from the dead and like, you know, like he's the beast or anything like that. Like I'm not even trying to connect those dots. So if you heard me saying anything about Apple, like negatively, that's, that's not what I'm doing here. Okay. I'm just, I'm just saying that, that, that it is possible already to do some of the things that the scriptures, the scriptures talk about. So however it goes down, the mark will be something subtle that will divert or claim our worship. And that's why we have these warnings in scripture. Right? That's why we have them. So because we need to know that our worship will be tested. We will be tested. And some tests may be like, you know, renounce Christ or die. Well, that's an easy one. You see that one coming. These other tests of worship were for take the B or take the mark, or you won't be able to buy, or you won't be able to sell. That, that's a subtle. That's a subtle test that, that we may fail if we're, not, if we're not aware of it. So comparatively. We need to be on guard. So Daniel is trying to warn us. Let's get back to those stories here. The first thing that Satan wants to do is exalt man above God. So we live in a hedonistic culture. You guys know what hedonism is? Of course, this is this is where we exalt or worship ourselves. It's do what you want to do. Whatever feels good to you is what you do. In fact, hedonism has even infiltrated the, the church in America because I believe that we run around and say, well, that scripture didn't mean what it said it means or, or what you think it means or it did. That's not really what God meant, and we kind of bend it to fit how we want to live and how we want to live our lives, right? And so hedonism has crept in, and, and this is exalting man above God. And uh, and I would say warning, that that's a dangerous place to be if that's what you're doing with Scripture, okay? And if you don't believe that we are under this kind of attack in our time, that, that we'll say that, that uh, man gets exalted above God, I want you to look back to th- 2012 with me. Look at Hobby Lobby and the Catholic Church, who was recently enforced or told by our government, you will have to pay for abortions in your health care programs. Right? You need to pay for that. And they said, well, that's morally wrong. We don't, we don't want to participate in that. It's one thing for culture and the world to participate in that. It's a whole other thing to make us pay for it and to participate in it. it it's a whole other thing. And they said, well, if you don't participate, we're going to start fining you millions of dollars. And they said, well, you better get to fining them. Yeah. They said, you better get to do it. And I, I, look, they believed, as I do, That abortion is the greatest genocide that we have ever seen. We are killing the next generation and we are calling it a choice. Now, I'm not here to bring condemnation on you if you've chosen to have an abortion. Now, that's not not what I'm doing. I'm just saying that we need to be aware that this is one of the things that is happening in culture where they are forcing their beliefs upon us. They are forcing them upon us. So back to Daniel, the Hebrew boys are told that they will bow or they will burn, okay? Daniel three sixteen through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, I love this part, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Primarily because they'd be dead, you know, if God doesn't rescue them, they're going into the fire. But still, the, the thought was there. They had resolved in their hearts. They were not going to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And this was, is this was that attitude, come hell or high water, we aren't going to bow. We hope our God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. Their worship wasn't going to be phased by the fear and the threats that were being made on their life. There was nothing that Nebuchadnezzar had to offer them that was greater than God himself. Nothing. Nothing. And there was nothing bad enough that he could do to them that would make them bail on God. And to me, that's just beautiful. That's just beautiful. And I want to be in that place personally. I don't necessarily uh, want the threat of, of fire. Like, I'm not really excited about burning up. But, but I want to be in that place where I'm resolved that my worship is just for God and Him alone. That God is the focus. Now, this story wraps up, of course, with these guys being thrown into the fiery furnace. We know what happens. That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's three, get thrown into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar is watching on. And uh, they, 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 they're not burning up. They say, make it seven times hotter for them. They do. And the guys that are even just standing guarding the entrance are killed because the fire is so hot. And the next thing you know, the king looks in and there's four guys. Four guys in the fire. And he says, and one of these guys looks like, did we not throw three guys in? And one of them looks like the Son of Man. This is Jesus standing in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So not only do these guys have the greatest test of their lives, but then they get to hang out with Jesus in the middle of a fire. So Nebuchadnezzar calls out to them and says, hey, guys, come on out of there. And they came out of there better off than when they went in, because they went in, when they went in, they were bound up. When they came out, they were unbound and unshackled. And just had an encounter with Jesus and this amazing thing where they weren't burnt up. And revival hits Babylon. The people bow down and they worship God. Look, if you want revival in your city, if you want to see people turn to God, it's not going to come from a church that is, that is not able to stand for what they believe when they're challenged. You must be able to stand. And if this whole thing isn't astonishing to you, then you aren't reading your Bible like it's actual history because this is a history book, right? This isn't a fairy tale story. This, this kind of stuff will mess with your head because that scenario, getting thrown into a fire, that is crazy. And to walk out and to not be burned or singed or smell like smoke. They stood for their faith. They were thrown into the fire and came out unharmed. Our faith will be tested. The second thing the devil wants to do is stop the worship of God because it isn't enough to dilute your worship. He wants to stop you from worshiping God altogether. The first test says we are going to do this. The second test says we aren't going to do that. So we are seeing this played out today in our culture. One one example, of course, and I believe it's coming to America. You can look look to Canada, no further than Canada, just just up north. Where currently reading some scriptures out loud or publicly will get you thrown in jail because they believe that some of those scriptures are hate crimes. Hate crimes. And it's been that way for a while, for, for at least a year or two in Canada. That certain scriptures cannot be read because they are hate crimes. I'm telling you, it is coming. It is coming here to America. There will be a day that we will not be able to profess and to read a scripture and to say what we believe because it will be considered a hate crime. It's coming. It's coming. All right. Let's see what happens with Daniel. Daniel 6, 10 through 12. It says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knee and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he has done before. So Daniel doesn't alter anything. He doesn't alter anything. They made a decree and said, You cannot worship your God for 30 days. And he said, Yep, okay. (laughs) Okay. You can stick that one in your ear. I'm going and I'm going to do it. And that's what he does. <clears throat> and so then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying. Remember, they were looking for him to mess up, and they knew that he would do this. They found him praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lions' And The king says, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. In other words... My final answer, yes. And Daniel didn't change his lifestyle. He just kept right on praying. Now what would we do? Would we continue to do the things that we believe the Bible commands us, even after they become illegal here in this country? Will we continue to do that? Where is the line for us? Will we compromise? And of course Daniel's story wraps up that Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. We know this. It's popular. You, You call it a children's story. I call it a piece of history, a real thing that happened. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, and he's there overnight. And guess what? His friend, King Darius, who didn't realize this was an attack on Daniel, is up pacing all night long, worried for his friend. And in the morning, he comes down, and he says, throw open the lion's den. Daniel, you in there? He's like, yep, I'm just down here petting the kitties. And Daniel is unharmed, and he comes out of the lion's den. And what happens? Revival again comes to Babylon. Because Daniel was resolved in his heart. And great things will always come on the other side of persecution, but we have to draw the line. So if we're to pass these tests, how do we pass these tests? I I think it's really, really very simple. Mark 12, 30 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. This is how we pass the test. We have to constantly be looking at ourselves and say, "Are, are, are we doing that Because if we're doing that, then our worship, all the worship that we are supposed to be giving to God will be in, in alignment. See, God doesn't mind if you have other passions in your life. He just wants to be the number one passion in your life. He wants to be first in such a way that all other things would be, as the Apostle Paul calls them, that they would be rubbish in comparison to him. So he wants to be first in our heart and soul. That's our affections and our passions, the things that we get excited about. Look, like I know tomorrow you're going to get excited during the Buckeye game. Who's going to watch the Buckeye game? O.H.? H. That's what I'm talking about. We're excited to watch the Buckeye game and we're passionate about our Buckeyes. We want them to beat those ducks, beat them bad. The first half, praise you, Jesus. We want... We want we're passionate. We're passionate about it, but, but are we as passionate about about God as we are about the Buckeyes? You know, people, people get excited in church, and you go, well, that lady, she's just too loud, or that guy, I can't believe he was raising his hands during service, or did you hear him? He's like, look, they're passionate about what God has done to them. Does that summarize the whole worship experience? No, but it is a way that we can worship. We can be passionate about when we praise God, we can sing, we can lift our hands, we can surrender our voices and our hearts to him during that time that's just one way can we be passionate about god he says all your mind as well this is your plans your thoughts your hopes your dreams what you think about do you meditate on him do you have your hope in him and then your strength this is all that you do whatever it is that you do inside the church and outside the church whether you, you work in broadcasting or you work for for you know Denny's down the road. Do we have a Denny's down the road? TJ's. Doesn't matter. It's whatever you find yourself to do. That you do it with all your strength. Whether you work out in the parking lot or you work back in children's ministry or you get to play keys up here on Sunday morning. Or you get to host, or whatever it is that you find to do, are you doing it with all of your strength? When you do that. You are doing it as unto the Lord. You are giving Him worship. That's worship. Hallelujah. And if we are to pass the test, we need to decide who we will not worship. We need to draw the line in the sand, and God promises to help us. In Second Chronicles 16.9, He says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Hallelujah. Then we have to know who it is that we will worship deciding in our hearts that we will worship God alone. So we know who we won't. we know who we will. John 4.23 says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Look, God is pursuing people who are passionate about Him. He's looking for people who are willing to wholeheartedly give all their worship to Him. Let's pray today. Look, some of you are here and you've fallen for the deception. You've compromised your worship to God. But God must be Lord of all or not Lord at all. You can't just come to church and think you know the Lord. He wants our best. He deserves our best. Some of you are here and you've never had a relationship with God. Both of these kinds of people, both groups of these people can be made right with God right now. And if you want to be counted in that group of people that say, Aaron, I need to get right with God. If you want to be made right with him and you'd say, count me in, I would ask you just to put your hand in the air right now. There's nobody looking around. I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to know, is there anybody here that would say for the first time, or maybe the hundredth time, I need need to be right with God. Thank you for those hands. Thank you. All I want you to do is out there, whether you raise your hand or not, if you want to pray this prayer with me, you can can mean it in your heart. Lord Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of worshiping other things above you. Today, I put you first. Make me brand new. Change me. Help me to be the person you need me to be and you made me to be. I give you my life in Jesus' name. Father, I pray right now that you would just help us. Help us to make you first in all of our passions and all of our thoughts and all that we do. You deserve the highest praise in all of our worship. We love you and we thank you for the good plans that you have for our lives. Help us worship you with all that we are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to have the band. We're going to sing another song.